Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Welcome all to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're very excited to have you with us today and listening to this podcast. We have a special guest with us today, Clive Davis. No, not the uh, promoter, Whitney Houston and so many other artists, but Clive Davis, the real estate investor and uh, multifamily mogul. I guess we'll call you that to to some degree. So we appreciate you being here, Clive. And I thank you for being in attendance with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Joel. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward good. to sharing with the audience. Good, good, good. So if you don't mind, uh, just uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and, um, you know, kind of how you got started in this commercial real estate space altogether, because I understand your background is in law. It's not actually in real estate. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I professionally got started out as a corporate transactional lawyer working for a Wall Street firm and uh, servicing uh, that clientele. The investment banks uh, started out in New York City, servicing the investment banks and by extension, their clients. So Fortune 100 companies, generally speaking. Uh, So I was doing debt and equity offerings, among other things, for several years out of law school. Then made the transition to in-house counsel with Pfizer, Mm -hmm. which is in the the news these days for, for all the right reasons. And so I was a lawyer in-house for Pfizer for six years, the last two of which uh, they had actually transferred me from New York to Atlanta, which is how I arrived in Atlanta going on 17 years ago now. Okay. After finishing up my time with Pfizer, I went on to become a chief compliance officer for a Belgian pharma company, mm-hmm. headquartered in Brussels globally, and then U.S. headquarters in Atlanta. And so I did that for a total of nine years. So all in all, I had a, a 20-year corporate career with different legal and compliance roles. Throughout that time, I will say that I was invested in real estate, but mostly small multifamily, small uh, rental holdings that I wouldn't say I was managing professionally. I was self-managing from wherever I was at the time, whether that was New York or Atlanta. And I had investments in properties in, in Florida as well as in New York. So I I always had this uh, kind of aspiration or interest in real estate, always kind of flirted with the idea of being an entrepreneur, but not necessarily knowing what that looked like. And so um, at the end of 2016, that's when I made the decision that 20 years was a good run. And if not now, when? And so I totally flipped the script and walked away from uh, the W-2 and kind of started pursuing this this journey that I'm on now and have been on for the last five years, all towards working towards acquiring large-scale multifamily communities. And we can get into more of those details. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. So let's dive back into that a little bit because you probably, well, you certainly know this as well as I do at this point. I'm actually an old Wall Street guy as well. So uh, we certainly have those roots. And what's interesting about it is that there's really a different mindset that you have to have in order to go out here and stake your own claim, if you will, as an entrepreneur. You know, there's a lot of people that sit on that ledge of entrepreneurship and they're like, nah, if I fall, it's just too too painful to hit the ground. 
So they wind up not doing that, and they, they retreat back into that, that W-2 world. What do you think it was on your end that really just kind of pulled you out to say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do this? Was it the prep building up of owning properties that kind of gave you that comfort level to do that? Or what would you say it really was that made you jump out there and get this done? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Joel. Most people will never venture outside of their comfort zone. And, and in order to, to transition into the entrepreneurial world, it requires you to do that. So the longer you've been doing something, in my case, 20 years in corporate America, you get to a point where that's very comfortable your growth is probably somewhat stagnant. You're not growing by leaps and bounds you know, in your 20th year. And also the golden handcuffs become tighter. So with each passing year, you're being compensated uh, more handsomely and it becomes harder to walk away. For me, there were a few things going on. One, I'd gotten, I was in my mid 40s and I said, you know, if not now, when? Mm-hmm. I had my oldest child at the time who was going to be heading off to college. And and so uh, in addition to that, I had my mom who was having some health challenges, kind of bouncing between hospital and home. And, and I just said, you know, this this is an opportunity for me to just, you know, do, do a timeout, kind of assess where I'm at. What I tell people is, for me, I... I I look at it as being precarious to be solely reliant on a W-2 with no other forms of income coming in. And, and so I think that is risky. Yeah. Um, and it requires a mindset shift to start looking at things that way because, Absolutely. you know, I say to folks, um, you know, in venturing out on this entrepreneurial journey, for me, I knew worst case scenario, if for whatever reason it didn't work out, I could always go find a six-figure job. You know, I, I'm not saying that to be boastful or anything. No, um, that's true. You know, yeah. But that's my that that's yeah. my downside protection. I, I I I have a law degree. I have 20 years of corporate life and, and experience. Worst case scenario, I, I worked on the assumption that you know, if this pursuit doesn't work out, I'm still going to pay the bills. That the, the, we're still going to eat. I can figure out a way to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so my safety net, again, shifting mindsets. My safety net became falling back on, you know, I can go get a job if need be. Whereas most people in corporate life, they're thinking with a mindset of this is a good paying job. I've got benefits associated with it. Uh, I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. Mm -hmm. What I tell people is, you know, a good job or a high paying job, highly compensated job can be good today and non-existent tomorrow. You can go in and they can say, Joel, you know, um, you know, we appreciate your years of service, but we no longer have a need for your, your role or, or we no longer have a need for you. Yep. And so you go from being highly compensated W-2 employee to no compensation. And, and that's a drastic shift. And, and so, you know, I'm always talking about diversifying your income streams. Even if you decide I love what I'm doing in corporate life, you should still, and this is really my, my avatar investor, is the, the highly compensated individual whose demands on their time is, is very high. They don't necessarily have the time to be an active investor, but they have an opportunity to participate in passive investment opportunities of the kind that I, I present to them. So for me, it was really about venturing outside of my comfort zone, uh, developing muscles uh, that I hadn't necessarily needed 
in my corporate roles. I talk to people about the importance of networking, true networking and relationship building. Frankly, I could be very successful. I was successful in my corporate life without having to network in the way that I have been for the last five years, where it's it's the lifeblood of everything that you do if you're trying to pursue real estate deals in the commercial real estate space. So it's really about venturing outside the comfort zone. So the first thing I did in 2017, no W-2 now, uh, unemployed by choice, was to go buy an apartment community, a commercial apartment community, a five unit. And as you know, Joel, Mm -hmm. once you're five units and above, you're in the commercial realm, uh, four units unless it's residential. Right. And it's important. It's an important distinction because the lending protocols are different depending on whether you're residential Mm -hmm. or commercial. And so I didn't necessarily appreciate that as much, again, when I was in corporate life, because that was my world. I'd I'd grown accustomed to having a W-2. And so if anyone ever asked me for my pay stubs and tax returns, no problem. And, And then I move into a world where you know, if I were to go get a even a single family rental, a duplex, triplex, fourplex, one of the first things a bank is going to ask you is two years tax returns and your last two pay stubs. Mm-hmm. And when you tell them that you don't have pay stubs, you don't have a W-2, that doesn't compute for them. And so they try and, you know, squeeze a, a peg into a square and it just it, it's not going to fit. So, so for me, it was, okay, let, let's get outside the comfort zone. So I went and bought a five unit down in Florida in the same place where my parents were trying to kill two birds with one stone, uh-huh. because that would give me the opportunity to spend more time with my aging parents. And I'd also be able to do what I consider really a proof of concept purchase or acquisition of that five unit and see, you know, Clive, is this really something that you want to do? So you know, kind of fast forward, I'm giving you the short version, but um, I I acquired a five unit, renovated four of the five units, got renovated one, had to evict a hoarder uh, out of one of the units. So all of the joys of being a landlord. And then it afforded me the opportunity to spend two weeks out of the month down in Florida uh, with my parents, which you know, prior to that, I was lucky if I was able to see them twice a year, given the demands of my, my corporate role and the travel to Brussels, to Sao Paulo, to Mexico City, whatever. And so one of the things that I was thinking about at this time period, Joel, is how do I reclaim ownership of my time? Yeah. So And so when you... When you yeah. <laughs> when yeah you, I mean, interrupt you, but that is the biggest thing. I try to teach my kids that all the time, this time. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you you might be highly compensated, and I was highly compensated, but someone else owned my time, and so I was trading my time for money. Yeah. Um, and so it requires you again. We're talking about mindset shift. You need to wean yourself off of one the, the exclusive reliance on that one income, and you also have to change your mindset to you know, I'm going to pursue things that enable me to take back my time. You know, there's a lot of mind sh- mindset shifting that is taking place as you transition out of that comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and we're completely on the same page about all of that, because, you know, when you're young, you think the biggest asset is money. But as you get older, you realize it's time. Time is your most valuable asset, the ability to do what you want to do 
with your time is most valuable. And a, a corporate job just usually will not give you that, you know, from that standpoint. So you, in order to claim your time back, you have to be able to do something else. So, so that's that's interesting. If you look at that model, you started off with um, kind of a a plan of just going to a five unit. Uh, I'm assuming the idea may have been to be able to stay in one of the units while you were down there and maybe rent it out. Or were you doing that as kind of an Airbnb scenario? Or no, I was I was actually staying with my parents because again I was trying to kill two birds, and so it gave me the opportunity to be in the house with them, providing some some measure of assistance uh, to my mom and, and my dad as needed. So all five units were rented. It was really, like I said, it was a proof of concept. You know, I wanted to do something. I didn't want to be idle. And so I'm all about taking action. Mm-hmm. And so while that's the lowest end of the commercial multifamily real estate scale, you're in the game. And so I wanted to be in the game and that got me in the game. I ended up holding that until the end of Q1 of 2020. And then I ultimately sold that, did very well with that, that property. But, uh, you know, 2000, early, late in 2017, 2018, I just said, okay, no more of the small stuff. I, I need to navigate towards large-scale multifamily. And so I started on a journey of educating myself and immersing myself in that world. Uh-huh. and just surrounded myself with people who were doing the things that I wanted to do. And so early on, I had started, first of all, I had moved my retirement funds, my legacy retirement funds from my prior employers. I moved that into a self-directed IRA. Uh-huh. Prior to you know leaving corporate life, I didn't even know what a self-directed IRA was. And I came to learn that, oh, there are other options. You don't need to just leave it there or turn it over to Fidelity and have them tell you put 60% here, 30% here, and 10% here in one of these 12 baskets. And so the self-directed IRA gives you the opportunity to invest in pretty much, there are only like two investment categories that you cannot invest in. I think collectibles is one and I forget the others, but you can invest in anything from thoroughbred horses and, and thoroughbred horses sperm um, to, to uh, oil that sky's the limit. I think probably 60 to 70 percent of self-directed IRA funds are actually in commercial real estate. And that's where I, I chose to invest. And so I invested in multifamily across the country uh, from California to Texas to Florida, Georgia, certainly some in New York. And so that enabled me to see how uh, high-level institutional quality sponsors put these deals together, how they put together the capital stack, w- what investor relations look like, how did they promote these opportunities. And so while I, I, I was looking for a return on, in, on my investment for each of these investments, mm-hmm. the bonus for me was, was really I'm educating myself to do, you know, whether it's 12 months away, 18 months away or, or longer, I was preparing myself for I'm going to be doing deals of this type and this, this, this size. And so, um, you know, I'm investing where I believe and where I'm going. You know, all of that was part of my education. Started listening to podcasts uh, it, prior to you know in corporate life. I don't think I ever listened to a podcast start to finish. Uh-huh. You know, late 2016, 2017, I was listening to three or four podcasts a day focused on multifamily and just learning. And so it's informal education, but it's no less valuable than anything that many of us did on a college campus. 
Uh And so that's where I was investing my time. The final piece of the education was joining a mentoring program, apartment investing mentoring program, again, where I'm surrounded by people who believe in multifamily, who invest in multifamily, and some people who actively own and operate multifamily. And so that, you know, for me, I tell people, whenever you decide to get with a mentor, the, the goal should be to collapse or compress the timeline of what it would otherwise take you to obtain that experience, knowledge, information to accomplish whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. So let's say that it would take three years of me fumbling around uh, via Google and YouTube and what have you and trying to piece together a program. You know, if you get with a mentor, they should be slashing that time and that should be, you know, 12 months. So going from 36 months to 12 months, and that's what you're paying for. And so that's what I I did. And that kind of catapulted me in my journey in pursuit of large-scale multifamily. All right. That's fantastic. You know, the, the thing about it, and, you know, we're, we're probably close to the same age if, if you look at it from that standpoint. And you you start thinking, okay, how many years do I have left to really make this happen? You know, it's like when you first get out of school, you say, okay, I got this 20 years to accomplish this. And then you're 40 and you're like, okay, I got 20 years to accomplish this next thing. But you get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm running out of these 20-year windows. Right. So yeah. if you're going to do it, like you mentioned earlier, why not now? You know, and, and one good thing um, that's certainly admirable is, is you went out and instead of saying, you know, I've got this all figured out, I'll do it my, myself uh, as a lawyer. You know, you could simply say I know how to le- read legal documents, so I'll just do it on my own. But you went out there and got someone to kind of educate you and direct you in the right path. And uh, I mean, in five years, to cut down on that window so dramatically and, and own the amount of units that you own is, is pretty impressive, you know, from that standpoint. So, you know, you, you walk the walk and implemented what you learned. Yeah. And, and the one thing that you learn, again, we'll, we'll revisit limited mindsets. So in corporate life, you know, I, I had a mindset that, yeah, if I'm going to go invest in real estate, it's going to be the extent to which I'm able to invest is going to be dependent on what I have in the bank. So what do I have in savings? What can I come up with in terms of a deposit? When you're buying large-scale multifamily, it is a team sport. Yeah. And so, so people don't just, you know, even if you're sitting on seven figures, people don't just put seven figures into these deals. You want to have some skin in the game and you want to be able to articulate that to your prospective investors so that they know that, okay, I'm in, I believe in the, the project and opportunity and, and I'm sharing it with them and I have something to lose if, if the deal were to go, go left. So it's important to have something in the game. I don't believe in you can do these deals with, with you know, no money down or, or no money. You definitely got to have something in the, some stake in the game, but you're, you are doing it where you are leveraging, you're leveraging a lender uh, of some sort. Uh-huh. And then you're leveraging private investors who you're able to share the opportunity with. And, and then you're coming together with other partners who are each playing a role to make the deal happen. So I think there was a question in the, the chat box about putting together the initial capital stack. So maybe if, Joel, if I get into some specifics. Yeah, of- I was, I was going to say this is a, is a good segue. Um, Uriah is a, a regular on the show. And um you know, it's, it's leading right into what you were talking about. You know, how did you do that? So let, let's jump in right now. We can go ahead and discuss that. Yeah. So so the first thing I'll say is I, I, I am not an overnight success. I, I believe in getting rich slowly. 
And, and so from the very first time that I submitted an offer in April of 2019 on a 92 unit, I believe, it took me the better part of just over two years before I, I landed my first deal. So that's me submitting LOIs, letters of intent, being best and final, being a runner-up, doing buyer interviews, and ultimately not prevailing until summer of 21. I was awarded a 244 unit here in Atlanta. A 70s vintage property that we acquired for just under 30 million. And we closed on that in November of 21. So we raised eight and a quarter million in equity. We had a loan of approximately 25 million. And so, you know, we went out to our network and uh, shared the opportunity with them. And we raised that eight and a quarter million with a minimum investment of 75,000. Uh, so most people clustered around that seventy-five thousand, but others put it in multiples of that. Uh-huh. That's how that's how we uh, were able to do the first deal. I had three partners, all of whom were part of that mentoring group that I mentioned earlier. Um, so another benefit beyond kind of just the education uh-huh. is who are the people that you are associating with and have an opportunity to potentially partner with, who are going to a- enable you to do a deal like that. So. You know, going from the five units to 244 units doesn't happen, you know, doesn't happen without you being a member of a team and drawing upon the expertise and experience of, you know, others, others who are further along in their real estate investing journey than you are, because one of the things that you're going to need to do is to establish credibility. And so I could tell a broker, hey, look at me, I'm Clive, I'm a, you know, Ivy League educated lawyer. Uh, give me the deal. And that means nothing to them. They could care less about that. They could care less about my 20-year corporate career. They could care less about how many units I've been a passive investor on. Their their primary concern is, if I'm going to put you in in front of my client, the seller, I need to be comfortable that you have the ability to close this transaction. (laughs) and, and, And I don't want egg on my face. So the easiest path, the path of least resistance for them is let me just go to one of the, the, the people I've done business with before mm-hmm. and see if they're interested. Or if I've not done business with them before, someone who has a track record that I can point to, oh, they've just closed three deals in the last six months. Right. Yeah, they're likely going to be, be able to close this with no issues. So again, to overcome that, you've got to associate yourself with existing credibility and that's where the team comes into play. And so the partners that I was able to collect with, connect with, each of them had done deals. None of them had done deals in Georgia or Atlanta. You know, that put, put me and put us in a better position in competing for opportunities than if it was just me trying to leverage my resume. You know, that would not have gotten it done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good point. So 75000 you got together with uh, some teammates, if you will as part of that deal, and, and that gave you the credibility in order to get the thing done. Obviously, they had already done deals before, so you could put that on that resume, and, uh, and that certainly works out. You're right, you brought this also up. Uh, could you share insights on what you did to attract investors? Was there a presentation, implement, uh, or template, a framework for you to present the opportunity? Uh, very good question. Uh, how would you answer that, Clark? Yeah, absolutely. So typically the way, so, so, I, so I pursued 
uh, I, I shouldn't assume. So, so we did this via a syndication model. So the syndication model, this is a securities offering. We're going out, in our case, we went out to friends and family, but really in my case, at least, uh, there was no family money in the deal. And I generally, unless you are you know, of a certain stature in the case of, of these opportunities, you're either an accredited investor, so you make 200K a year for the last two years with, with an expectation of making that or more in the current year. If you're a couple, it, the, the threshold is 300,000. There are some other ways that you can qualify for accredited investor status, including your net worth, if it's a million or more, excluding your personal residence. And then they've subsequently introduced some uh, licensures uh, that will enable you to qualify that way. So the bulk of the people that we're going out to are accredited investors. You're also able, if you're doing a Reg D 506B, which is basically the, the friends and family avenue of offering these opportunities, if you're going that way, you can offer it to up to 35 sophisticated investors. And I'm, I'm using air quotes up to 35 sophisticated investors. So that's where, you know, the folks who don't hit that 200K threshold, but yet they're sophisticated in some other ways. Maybe they have their own business. Maybe they've done investments in the past. Uh, you can include those folks despite them not being accredited investors. So the way that we do it is uh, once we get a deal under, once we have an accepted LOI, we blast out to our, our network and let them know, hey, we've gotten our LOI accepted. We're negotiating the contract. Uh, we're going to be bringing forward this opportunity. Here's what it roughly looks like. We'll get into all of the details during a webinar, you know, in two, three, four weeks. And then in the interim, we're pushing out information. So, you know, we push out an information that says, you know, we, we're now under contract. We've now concluded due diligence. You know, all of that is in the buildup to that webinar where we're going to present the deal fully, uh, present our pro forma, present our underwriting, and also do Q&A. So that's the typical protocol of, of how we present these opportunities. Gotcha. So do you normally do that with one webinar or do you do multiple webinars or is it just driven by the response? Yeah, so we we um we only I've only been the, the two deals that I've done, I've only done one webinar. And you you're getting expressions of soft commitment all the way up to the webinar. So it it's even possible that you could be uh, fully subscribed before you even get to your webinar if the deal is really attractive. But one webinar to answer your question. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. And uh, you're right. You keep hitting us with these questions. Is it possible to come on on the uh, mic and uh, share with us your thoughts? Or are you somewhere where it's noisy in the background? No, I'm actually uh, here. I uh, didn't know if you were doing a different format for this particular podcast, but good morning. Everybody. No, it's a, it's a little early for Q&A, but, you know, we're going to let you in. So, uh, <laughs> so go ahead and, uh, and, and share your thoughts. You had a, another question here, so I'll let you have the floor. No, this is, this is a great conversation, Mr. Davis. It, essentially, a lot of the things, and I joined a little later on, I have to take a call, but essentially a lot of the things that you're speaking on is simply reinforcing some some high level assumptions that I've that I've came up with as I look to build out um, the framework for my first deal. Being new to CRE, have a great idea that I'm working on, and so the, thank you for sharing your insights. Uh, the self directed IRA approach is an approach that I've been exposed to. I haven't actually set up one yet, um, and I was actually thinking about leveraging a similar strategy in terms of rolling over a legacy 401. 
401k account and the funds there into my initial deal. So that's great to hear you speak on that. So Uriah, um, I, I would, sorry to interrupt, but I, I will tell ahead. you that the self-directed IRA enables you to invest in others' others' deals as a passive investor. Yep. It doesn't enable you to put that into your own deal. So that's ah, one of the okay. prohibition. So, you know, okay. after this, you can, you know, if you go off and you Google self-directed IRAs, there's a ton of YouTube videos, ton of education and, and information out there. But uh, it's still retirement-related funds, so they're not letting you put that. So one of these deals that I did, for example, I couldn't put my own retirement funds into that deal. That would be self, that would be self-dealing, and so it does enable you to invest in other people's opportunities. And likewise, other people can invest their self-directed IRA funds into your opportunity. Got you know, as you're, as you're kind of reaching out to your network, sometimes you might hear, you know, I don't have seventy-five thousand. <laughs> And if you talk to them and you say, well, hey, do you have any uh, 401k retirement funds from a prior employer employer that is sitting around or sitting in an account? And they may say, yeah, I've got two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars, but that's in my retirement funds. Then you have an opportunity to educate them about how they can unleash that and put that into these types of opportunities. So apologies for interrupting you, but I wanted to make no, sure that's, that that's great. Better. That's great. I wanted to get, I wanted to ask your thoughts on you see different scenarios where some people go about taking lines of credit or taking equity out of their primary for to in order to leverage that as some sort of capital towards a deal. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that is a feasible approach or do you think that that is a risky approach? I just would love to get your thoughts on that, like taking equity out of your primary if you have equity and or leveraging lines of credit against your primary to get that first deal off the ground. Yeah, so it depends on the size and scale of what you're trying to do. So uh, in, in earlier in my kind of real estate life, I've certainly taken equity out of my personal home and leveraged that to do other things. But I, I, I would not be trying to do that in connection with the deals that I'm doing now. So if I'm if I'm purchasing something for 30 million or 40 million and I'm trying to raise eight to 13 million, the equity in my home isn't really going to be meaningful in, in relative to that type of scale of deal. But let's say that you want to go buy a you know, I talked about my five unit acquisition. I certainly could have pulled equity out of my home and and. That could have been part or all of my down payment to go buy a five unit or, or something even smaller. In terms of risk, that that's gonna you know I, that's gonna come down to what your personal risk tolerance is and and your personal situation. And so I, I, I'm hesitant to kind of offer too much there without knowing anything about you or your, your situation. But I think you can. Real estate is all about leverage, and so. If you can leverage equity in either your personal residence or another asset, and that will enable you to unlock value in an opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise be able to, to access, by all means, I, I, I would be very comfortable doing that. But again, it depends on what scale you're, you're, you're looking at. Got it. And could you share some guidance around business plans, webinars to present to prospective investors would love to get your thoughts on what you've done and what you've seen in terms of best practices and in, in order to gain and capture the interest and ultimately commitment from your prospective investors. 
Yeah, so it, it's it's not a it's not a I mentioned that I'm not an overnight success. So it, it there's I mean we could we could go down a rabbit hole um, if we're not careful. So I'm gonna let Joel kind of stare stare me if I'm going too far astray. But so for me, when you're reaching out to friends and family, these are these are individuals, colleagues, former coworkers that you've established connection with and relationships with over 20 plus years. And so my largest investor on my first deal was actually a law school classmate when we graduated in 97 and, and I'm coming up on my 25th uh, reunion next month from law school. I had not been in communication with this individual since law school, but reconnected with him uh, via a friend that we have in common and ultimately he invested. So it, it's, it's refreshing those relationships that you've developed along the way. There's no magic formula. And, and, and that's two years of me pursuing opportunities. That's two years of me putting myself out there on social media, doing things like we're doing today, doing podcasts, uh, interviews as a guest, attending conferences in person. So all of those things are ingredients in developing an investor network. And so by the time you have an opportunity, it's more of a continuation of an ongoing conversation that you've already engaged them with, as opposed to I've got an opportunity and what are the things I need to do to make this attractive to uh, people who you may not have spoken with in years or, or you have a kind of a surface relationship with them. And this game, all capital raising is about, do I know you, do I like you, and can I trust you with my money? And so that doesn't happen overnight. I just put that in my notes. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I was just going to cover. That doesn't happen overnight. So that's you, you may need to touch someone three, four, five, six times. There are people that I've been presenting. I presented my initial opportunity to uh, who passed on that opportunity, passed on the deal that we just closed in, in November, a 200 unit, $40 million transaction. And, and they may pass on the next one that I share with them. You never know when their personal circumstances or situation are going to be such that they are now ready to put their dollars into your opportunity. So it's an investment. So I've talked a couple of times about making an investment. It's an investment of your time to be talking to, to be educating these people within your network. You can't just give up because, you know, you, you had some conversation with them and then lo and behold, they chose not to invest you know, that, that investment may be two years from now and they may turn out to be one of your biggest investors, but they've been watching you and they've been kind of studying you and following you. Um, I have people that reach out to me and they say, hey, Clive, I've been I've been following you on LinkedIn for the last two years. And I'm like, really? You, you've never commented on my posts. You've, ne- you've, <laughs> you've never messaged me. You know? <laughs> I had no idea. And so all that time I'm touching people via social media in a way that I can't one-to-one or can't even via a Zoom, but you never know who you're talking to. And so there is no magic formula. There's a a combination of things that you need to be doing. And I'd be happy to follow up with you offline. And I'd even share with you the webinar that I've done for, you know, one of my my deals. So you get a a firsthand look at what that looks like for educational purposes. And uh, that'd be awesome and truly appreciate that 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 opportunity that you're extending. This is a great insight. I, I don't want to ask too, too many questions. I, I feel like I'm getting even more inspired just uh, 
like getting the feedback and the, um, the hearing your responses. And so this is, this is great. I feel like I, I, it sounds to me like I'm, I'm somewhere a replica of where you started out at in terms of my thought process and some of the things I've been thinking about. So it's good. It's refreshing to hear the, 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 the tidbits of your journey and where you, and how you got to where you are. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Uriah. We, we appreciate it. And, um, you know, you, you hit on a lot of points. Uh, I do want to circle back on a couple things. You know, that question came up about would you take equity out of your house? And um, Clyde was, was spot on in saying it really depends on your situation and what you feel comfortable with. However, uh, a lot of people, and Clyde, we'll talk about this a little bit as well. A lot of people take the mindset of, you know, I've got to pay my house off and I got to have all this money saved up in order to retire. And it's actually a misnomer because if you think about it, the reason why they want to save that money up is so that they can draw it down to live off of. So what that really means is that you need cash flow. You don't need a whole bunch of money stashed away. So as long as you have cash flow by owning multifamily properties or something else, you'll be okay, right? And so being less concerned about, I've got to have all this equity in my house and pay this note off is in my mind anyway, more important to take those dollars and actually put them to work where you can actually uh, buy more properties and create more cash flow for yourself than just having a, a little small house that's one asset and is free and clear and all your equity is locked up and frozen in that one piece of property. So I don't know, Clyde, you have any thoughts on, on that one way or the other? No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement. Everyone's got to do their own personal kind of assessment and evaluation as to what makes sense for them. And again, risk tolerance. So yeah. some people are like, oh, no, that's way too risky. Some people would say, you know, when I, I decided to move all of my money out to the stock market, the only money I had left in the stock market was college savings 529 money for the kids. Outside of that, I moved all of my retirement funds into a self-directed IRA. Now, someone would say, you know, I talk to people to Uriah's comment. So I'm talking to people, friends, colleagues, people within the network, either in connection with a, a live deal or, or kind of in anticipation of an upcoming deal. So I talk to people who are well compensated um, in good jobs. And I talk to them about moving retirement funds into a self-directed IRA. And they, it's almost, for some of them, it's almost as if I, I, I insulted their religion uh, and, and, and the thought of touching, you know, touching retirement funds. They, they're comfortable with the volatility of the stock market. They're comfortable because we've all been educated that, yeah, you, you whatever it is these days, you put 20K a year into your 401K, you get, you benefit from whatever company uh, match. And then you hope that you've accumulated enough such that you can retire at 65 and, and hopefully you don't live too long because yeah, you're going to run wow. out of whatever's there. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying that that's one thing that you should be doing. But what are the other things that you're going to be doing? If you're concerned about creating generational wealth, I don't know of anyone who's created generational wealth as a result of them putting away 19000 or 20000 a year into their retirement fund. So, so you got to be doing more than that. And, and one of the things that we've all been kind of educated on is the, the power of diversification or the, the necessity of diversification. So I would say, again, from a risk management standpoint, it's very risky for you to have all of your funds in the stock market and in stocks, individual stocks, mutual funds, what have you, 
again, I talk to people and I raise that topic and some of them are like, okay, I've never heard of that. I'll look into it. And others are like, oh man, no, I would never touch my retirement funds. Right. I'm like, okay, this is not going to be an opportunity for you right now. You're, you're not, you don't have the mindset right now to be open to, you know, what I'm sharing with you. And, and that's, that's okay. Cause we all come to it at different points in time. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's all very, very true. You know, and it's it's all about mindset. It's all about what are you ready to do. You know, I've just and, and Uriah, you might want to think about it. And we've had these conversations before that um, you know if you're if a person was and not just you, but if a person was focused on I got to have all this money saved up and got to have my house paid for, you know, you could certainly put that money to work in an investment, even if it's a five unit. Turn that maybe two exit, three exit. And then take those proceeds and pay down that principal, you know, if that's your focus, right? I mean, me personally, I will put that in another investment and just rinse and repeat, but that's me. I'm a little bit more uh, risk, uh, less adverse than, than most people. But you're right. you got to do something because to me, one of the scariest things in the world is to walk into a job and uh, they say, you know what, we don't need you anymore or we're being bought out by so-and-so and they're cutting this department. Or, and you could have had 20 years, like in your case there, on a job and then tomorrow you don't have it. One of my boys worked for one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And uh, he had 30, 30 plus years in and they just one day told him, hey, you know, we're, we're shutting down this division. And that was it, right? So, you know, the need to diversify and, and be self-dependent is extremely important. So, uh, and then Clive also, uh, just, just one other point that I thought was very good. And like I said, you took my notes here. But um, at the end of the day, people still do business with people they know, like, and trust. If they don't know you, if they don't trust you, they're not going to do business with you. And you, you, you almost have to, not almost, you do have to build your network before you need it. You know, build those relationships, plant those seeds. And somewhere down the road, as you mentioned, there might be somebody following you that says, hey, this guy has a track record. I like what he's doing, and I'm going to get in on his next deal. And, uh, you know, you even got to look at yourself because sometimes, People come to you with things. You're like, man, I'll never invest with you. We'll do this or do that. But then if you see that they're successful, it's like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll give that some consideration. You know, we get that all the time with people that come to us to raise capital. You know, and it's like, you know, you've never had any success. You've never done this before. Why should I put my time into backing your deal to raise capital for you? You know, unless there's a huge retainer. Yeah. Um, so you, you got to look at things that way. So all of that's very true, you know, from that standpoint. So did you jump actually from a five unit straight to a, a, a I think you said 94 unit or were there some other small iterations along the way? 244 unit. So we, we sold that five unit in uh, 2008, actually 2021, end of the first quarter, a couple of weeks into COVID's onset. And then uh, we acquired a 244 unit in November of 21. So you know, I, I basically said, OK, I'm not doing any more small multifamily. The small multifamily served a, a purpose for me because in order to sustain myself, having gone from a being highly compensated to no compensation beyond savings, I was able to look to the, the, the passive cash flow from my rental properties and then ultimately the sale proceeds. So the, the duplex, when I sold that in 2018, that resulted in, you know, uh, cash proceeds that I had uh, to work with and, and, and leverage. And then ultimately, when I sold the five unit, I was able to take back out the equity I put into it, plus 
what I made on the deal. So that helped sustain me. And then that also served as kind of my skin in the game when it came time for me to get my first big deal, which is that 244 unit. I had, you know, the cash that I needed to, to at least say, I've got my own money in the deal too. So I'm asking you for 75,000, but I've got at least twice that in the deal. So yeah, I went from that five unit to the 244 units, closed that in November 21. And we got awarded the 200 unit that we acquired in February. We got awarded that in November, the same week that we closed on that first deal. So I talk about not being an overnight success and it taking me two years of, of kind of pursuing opportunities and, 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 and you know, being a bridesmaid, but never a bride. Ultimately, you know, I did two deals in excess of 70 million over a three month window. And uh, I'm pursuing more now with with a goal of doing uh, four of those deals uh, this year, 2022. All right. All right. Well, that's true. You do got to kiss a lot of frogs. So there's a lot of offers, uh, even myself, I'll put out there and, you know, sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't, sometimes they come back around. As you know, because they would have gone on the contract with somebody else and not worked out. We're we looking at a deal like that right now. So uh, it certainly can happen. So um, you're right. Did you have something else you wanted to share just before we wrap up today? Yes, sir. So there's a couple of things. I would say three things. Uh, well, four things. The, the, the first thing is, once again, Mr. Davis, thank you for, for taking time out of your schedule to connect with us. Um, I think Joel has really set a, a high standard and a high bar with, with creating this platform. And I'm continuously inviting others. To, to come in and chime in. So so thanks to the two of you. Um, the second thing is uh, we'd love to get some thoughts and maybe we may not have enough time to cover here, but I'm very interested in any guidance or insights that you can share around establishing syndicates or a syndication. I don't know if you leverage an attorney to get it set up. I, I know there's a lot of complexity to some degree with, with doing that. Um, the third thing I thought it was very profound to hear that you sh- was transparent with your investors, telling them how much you've put into the deal. Um, so I think that that's good to hear. Um, and then the third thing, or the last thing, it would be need to um, uh, to follow up with you with I- any additional questions or, you know, if you're in the Atlanta area, I'm also in the Atlanta area. If you're going to be somewhere on the part of town, just to connect with you. So those are the, the four things I want to kind of leave here with. So th- thanks for the feedback. I'm not going to take them in order, so you'll you'll need to refresh me. But um, in terms of the investors, yeah, it's transparency, but it's rare that you're going to be do a webinar and you're not going to get that question. Well, how much do the sponsors have in the deal? So so you want to proactively head that off and be prepared to share that information. And so um, that's okay. something that we we talk to them and we say, as a sponsorship team, we have in aggregate, you know, X dollars in the deal, um, seven figures, if it's seven figures, whatever the case may be. And uh, we can certainly connect. I'm active on LinkedIn. I'm active on Facebook. Uh, Joel, I don't know how you do it, but I'm open to my information, my contact information being shared with attendees. Uh, that's not a problem. You can reach me at Clive, C-L-I-V-E at parkroyalcapital.com and we can connect via that email um, and go from there. And then the syndication piece, that's part of the education. That's part of the, the, the journey. Uh, you, you don't go raise $13 million without a lawyer. <laughs> um, it is a securities offering. So not only do you need a lawyer to handle the transactional piece. So while I'm a lawyer and uh, could certainly, I'm certainly capable of doing it, it would be malpractice for me to 
do the lawyer in on a deal that I'm offering to investors. So we absolutely go get a lawyer to handle the transactional piece, which is just the, the purchase and sale agreement, the traditional docs that you need to acquire. But then there's the securities piece. And that's where we're putting together a private placement memorandum and all of the supporting cast of securities related documents that you need to share transparently, disclosing the risk associated with the opportunity and all of that. So the, the legal is certainly one of the, the key third parties uh, that you need to do one of these. Again, if you're serious about going down this journey, there's a lot of education that you got to do. You know, I, I can point you in the direction of, of uh, where you might find that. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. So, yeah, so y'all can pick up on that all, offline. And um, <clears throat> we're kind of coming up on the end of the show for today. And uh, we certainly appreciate all the, the insights and all the uh, good information. Clive, uh, as you know, that this show is really designed for minorities that are trying to grow in the commercial real estate space. They're trying to get their footing. You know, what, what closing words would you have for uh, that next generation or those ones that are really just trying to get their themselves going in this space uh, that is often uh, cloaked in secrecy? Uh, what words would you have for them in closing? Yeah. So in many respects, it's a country club of sorts. And so you got to figure out what, what is the right attire? Where should the fork, the knife, the spoon, where should they be? Um, you know, you've got to educate yourself. The, 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 the biggest thing that I would say to the younger version of myself or others who are uh, kind of aspiring to get into this space, we are woefully underrepresented in the commercial real estate space. I think we're less than 2% of the commercial real estate space is occupied by African-Americans, which is, you know, it's an understatement to say it's unsatisfactory. So you got to figure out how do I, if you want to do it, how do I break into this space? And so the best way to do it is, is to seek out mentorship, seek out individuals who are doing what it is that you want to want to do. And so despite the, that, that kind of poor representation, wherever you are, so in the case of Uriah, I was just on a panel uh, two weeks ago hosted by the African-American real estate professional AAREP Atlanta chapter, where they put on an event which was entitled Wealth Building in Minority Communities. And so I was one of four panelists. We had a great turnout. And that's an organization. You can go to AAREP.org and navigate to the Atlanta chapter. And there's a wealth of resources for you if you're in Atlanta. So Again, you need to be networking with people who who have a vested interest in seeing you be successful in the commercial real estate space. That's really their mission is to empower uh, those of us who are underrepresented in the commercial real estate space to empower us to be successful and to break into the space. The, the, the biggest thing I would say is start sooner than you think. <laughs> so you know, if I, I have zero regrets because... Everything that I did prepared me to sit in the chair that I'm sitting in now. But uh, I didn't need to do 20 years before I pivoted and, and turned my direction towards this. There's more that I could have been doing even as a full-time working in a highly demanding job. There's more that I could have been doing in terms of educating myself, in terms of investing passively in these opportunities, so that I could have made for a smoother transition than what I ultimately had. I would just say, be willing to give your time free to someone. You know, if you want to be a syndicator, Uriah, I would say, 
Go find someone who's syndicating and offer yourself up, offer them value, something that they could use. And in doing so, you're going to be educated. And in return, you're going to be giving them hopefully something of value. So don't don't wait until you are you know done with your corporate life to make that pivot. Start earlier would be would be my answer. I do host a group on Facebook. Uh, if I could just give a, a shout out to the group, it's the African American Multifamily Investor Network. Uh, it's a Facebook group I started uh, probably about two years ago. And right now there's about 1,200 of us in the group and it's strictly focused on multifamily. Um, so you can certainly join that group. We have everyone from people who have never owned real estate and you know they're just thinking about, well, how would I go about buying a duplex that I could house hack and live in one side? And then we have people on the other end of the spectrum who have closed transactions of 1,200, 1,300 units in one deal and everyone in between. And, and then all of the roles, you know, there are many different roles if you want to be in commercial real estate, there's, you know, it's not just go be a syndicator. That's certainly one thing that you can do. But there are so many lanes within commercial real estate that you can occupy. You got to figure out what do you gravitate towards? What do you want to do? What's your short, medium and longer term goals? But seek out people, seek out those those people who can share with you their information, their, their experience and help you navigate a path that they've already um, gone down. Yeah, yeah, very good advice. You know, I always say we can do more together than apart. So, you know, we come together and work together and educate and, and learn from each other and work together. Uh, you know, there's a lot that we can be done. You know, that that combined effort can produce some great results. So appreciate you sharing that. By the way, the, um, the head of the Atlanta chapter of the AARP is going to be our guest, uh, I think, in a couple of weeks. So uh, we'll certainly be talking more about that and, and hopefully uh, get their involvement as well. So uh, excellent. I certainly appreciate it, Clive. A lot of good information. And one of the biggest things that you've covered that we were looking to cover today is how do I get from A to B? You know, that's always the hardest part. You know, how do I go from owning nothing or just this little something here all the way over to here? And uh, that's where it gets real foggy for a lot of people. So you're providing a lot of clarity. And uh, we certainly appreciate you taking the time out to do that. So and we appreciate uh, Uriah and our other guests for being here as well today. So uh, as always, this is the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're happy you were with us today. We certainly want to thank Clive Davis for being with us today. And uh, Clive, I'm sure we'll be talking more uh, about many other deals and other things in the near future. So thank you so much for being here this morning. Thanks for having me, Joel. And I invite folks to reach out and connect with me offline, one-to-one. All right, fantastic. Take care, everyone. Have a great afternoon. We appreciate you. See you soon. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.